0: reading this morning will be from Luke 23, 44 through 49. In your pew Bibles, it will be page 936. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw that what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, it is an honor to have you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, We are thankful that Susan is with us in our membership and that she is going to be worshiping and serving God uh, together with us, and we look forward uh, to being encouraged by her and be an encouragement to her also. Today, you probably noticed on your calendar, it's Easter Sunday, according to our calendar. And that brings up something very interesting. Many of us have already made comments about how early Easter rolled around this year. March the 23rd. Can you remember an Easter ever being as early as March the 23rd? Well, I can answer that for you. You can't. You see, the last time that happened was March the 23rd of 1913. Now, I boldly said you can't. We do have, I know at least Brother Marshall Wilhite was born in the year of 1913, but he was born after March 23rd. He was born in August. Now, there may be someone here that had a birthday prior to that, and if so, you're very unique in the sense that you would be one of the few that in this midst would have been alive the last time Easter was this early in the year. Now, perhaps some of the young ones might think, maybe I'll be able to see two Easter's that are early as March 23rd. No, you won't. You see, it'll be about another 152 years before that happens again. Along around 2160 will be the next time that it happens. Now that also brings to mind an interesting thought. Why on our calendars do we have two Easter's marked each time? You see, the calculation of Easter is not simple. As a matter of fact, even to this day, people do not agree upon how to calculate what day Easter ought to be. As a matter of fact, just to confuse you a little bit, let me summarize for you how Easter is calculated today. Easter Sunday date is the Sunday after the Paschal full moon, also known as PFM date. The PFM is the first Ecclesiastical full moon, EFM date, after March 20th. PFMs are predefined, See above, which goes back to a calculation that we came up with in the Uh, 325 uh, uh, AD. EFMs are approximated astronomical uh, full moon, astronomical full moon dates, not actual astronomical full moon dates. Some related facts. The PFM date is an EFM date that estimates astronomical full moon date. PFM date in our Gregorian calendar always occurs within three dates, before or after an astronomical full moon date. Therefore, Easter Sunday occurs around the time of astronomical full moon, but the astronomical full moon has nothing to do with determining Easter Sunday date. It goes on to talk about the dates have to range between March 22nd and April 25th. It will occur the same date 11 years later, except that will never happen more than four periods in a row. You see, the fact is this. Hopefully, with all of this confusing jargon, you at least understand the fact that due to the Gregorian calendar that came into effect in the 1500s that replaced the Julian calendar that uh, was in effect for hundreds of years, we're not really for sure what day is what day. And how to calculate something like Easter, it was difficult for them to calculate a day that would actually fall every year after the Passover, and of course... If we're going to celebrate in the mindset that Easter is about the resurrection it needs to happen after the Passover. Now here's the good question. Are we in danger if we have it all wrong? Because honestly, we don't know what is Easter Sunday. Is Easter Sunday about the resurrection? If so, who said it? This morning, I hope all of us can set at ease to realize that even though man has come up with the holiday of Easter, it doesn't exist in the Scriptures. So the pressure's off. We don't have to worry about getting a date exact because... It's never found once in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, before the Bible closes out, we have at least about 70 years of New Testament Christianity taking place, and never once did the New Testament church be recorded that they celebrated Easter. You see, that's something that came much, much later, where religious people said, let's come up with some holidays. Now, even though it is a wonderful thing to think about the resurrection... What I'd like for you to realize this morning is the idea of Easter being about the resurrection. Please note this. The resurrection isn't about Easter. Now let that sink in for a moment. That's not a play on words. That's true. Even though Easter is about the resurrection, the resurrection is not about Easter. The Lord didn't die and then was resurrected so that once a year the world could stop and think, wow, isn't that wonderful that the Lord resurrected? You see, if we think about it strictly from the Lord's standpoint, He has nothing to do with Easter. Because the idea that the Lord's life, death, burial, and resurrection would have to do with one time of the year is so foreign to what the Scriptures teach. You see, the Lord wants the resurrection to be about our life. Every moment of every day not about a holiday that rolls around once a year. You see, it's because of one of the most beautiful stories that's ever been told. A story that, don't you love it when a beautiful story has that almost perfect ending? That's what the story of Jesus Christ dying on the cross is because a couple of chapters later we read of the great resurrection. We read of the perfect ending. But yet it wasn't a story that ended there. It's a story that the Lord wants to touch our lives. He wants it to be a part of our lives so that He lives on and He lives on in us so that after our physical death, we will live on just as He conquered the grave. By His power, we too will conquer the grave. Look with me, if you, give, uh, if you will, again back to our text. We're in Luke, the 23rd chapter. And notice in verse 44... And forty five, as it speaks of the darkness. And as we think of this, I'd like for you to notice that it is, as the centurion is mentioned here, the, the Romans were the ones who crucified Jesus for the Jews. But yet God drew more attention to him than any of the Romans could ever draw to him. Notice 44 and 45. Now it was about the sixth hour, so it's about noon. And there was darkness over all the earth until three to the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. You see, it wasn't enough for God that Jesus Christ was crucified. You see, if, if it was done very quietly in a corner somewhere, only those involved in the crucifixion would know about the crucifixion, but God wanted everyone to know that something was happening that day. Friends, don't take lightly the phrase in Acts 26 and 26 where Paul is standing before Agrippa, and it's almost as if verbally he is shaking him, and he's saying, I know you believe what I'm saying, and finally, almost in a frustration but in eloquence mixed together, he says, this, talking about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus he says this thing was not done in a corner you see what Paul was saying to Agrippa is you can't say you don't know about this the whole world knew when this happened why did the whole world know about it because the whole world was dark from noon to three in the afternoon friends can you imagine that All of us have been outside and we've seen a storm blow over, a thundercloud, and we've seen how it has gotten a little bit dim compared to the bright sunlight. But friends, can you imagine grandfathers a few decades later trying to explain to their grandchildren? Can you imagine what those stories must have sounded like? Well, son, let me tell you, I was out plowing in the field, and, and it was on that day that about noon, all of a sudden, it became pitch dark. I thought I'd make my way back to the house, but... But you know, I just finally had to sit down and and two or three hours later, I was able to see enough to make myself, make my way back to the house. Can you imagine those stories? Friends, it was prophesied hundreds of years before in Amos the 8th chapter. Amos the 8th chapter, here's what Amos would say about this proof. That something was happening that would catch the attention of all the world. In Acts 8th chapter and verse 9, and it shall come to pass in those days, says the Lord God, that I'll make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, and all of your sons into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like mourning for the only son. And it's in like a bitter day. Yes, it was the morning of an only son and yes, it was dark from noon just as it was prophesied. As a matter of fact, it did remain a discussion that went down in the historical writings. Look to this next slide and notice what Tertullian says in Apologeticum as he wrote, and this was about 200 A.D., so this would have been about 160 or 70 years after at least that much after the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think how long that is, but yet this is still remembered uh, almost a couple hundred years later. This is how it's recorded. At that moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun. And the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your own annals and is reserved in your archives to this day. You see, he was recording it and then saying, you guys have seen it recorded over and over and over. You can't deny the fact that Jesus Christ lived. You can't deny the fact that when He died, there were supernatural things as if to say, okay, you Jews and you Romans may crucify Him, but God's saying, I'm going to make sure that the whole world knows that God is dying for their sins. Notice not only did He mention the darkness, but He also mentioned the veil and the temple. When you look at the end of 45, He says, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now as we think about the veil in the temple it was ripped from top to bottom and you and I can appreciate it I don't know if we can ever appreciate this as much as if we were there in a part of the culture of the Jews <clears throat> where they understood the teachings of God that there was a most holy place it was the mercy seat of God and, and only the high priest would enter in there once a year and no one else could enter in or not even the high priest at other times of the year unless their life would be taken and there they could go in and make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, a high priest had to go in on your behalf and on my behalf to make atonement for our sins. But yet when Jesus died on the cross, this thick, heavy veil that was so tall and so thick and no one had ever seen behind it except for the high priest. Uh, and, And then upon his death... It was torn open and mankind was allowed to see in for the first time because Jesus became our high priest. His blood now was being sprinkled on the altar. His blood was allowing us to enter in without going through another human being into the presence of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, he speaks of the blessing of Jesus dying and what it was for that veil. To be rent in two, that Jesus took us through that veil. And I'd like for you to be turning there, and that in your Pew Bible is 1065, I believe it is. 1065. We're going to read the verses on the screen here, but we're going to see a couple more verses that's not on the screen here. Look in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and think about the veil being rent. And what it offers to us, beginning at verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, before Jesus died, it wouldn't have been bold to enter into the most holy place. It would have been foolish. You and I would have died. But now that Jesus had died for us, the veil is rent open. And with boldness now, we can go into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Now we can go through the veil. Because of what Jesus has done. But now notice what this does for us. Now we have a high priest over the house of God. Now he takes this teaching and he brings it down to us. Have you ever noticed that whenever we learn the Bible but we don't say, What does that mean for me today? We really miss out. You see, it's the same way about the topic of the resurrection. If someone is thinking... Well, the resurrection is a wonderful holiday to experience once a year. We've missed out because what we need to stop and ask ourselves is, okay, the Lord is resurrected. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me each day of our life? Here, the resurrected Lord, His death and resurrection has rent the, the veil in the temple, and now it offers some blessings for us, but with these blessings come responsibilities notice the let us it almost sounds like a salad Let us notice the let us you're going to see it three times because of jesus dying here's what it's supposed to do for us 22 let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water you know the high priest would take and sprinkle blood but now it's no longer the sprinkling of animal blood, but now it's the blood of Jesus Christ that was sprinkled, that now our evil conscience can be purified. Now, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can be washed. And that's what he's referring to at the end of that verse. We find that washing in the waters of baptism, Acts 22 and 16, but it's not the waters that wash us, as ironical as that is. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us. Revelation 1 and 5 makes that very clear. And so here he speaks of that washing because the, the veil in the temple has been rent. We with boldness can have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. We can have the evil conscience taken away. By the blood of Jesus, we can be clean. So the question that I have to ask myself this morning is, have I responded to that resurrected Lord and have I been saved by His plan of salvation? Now, that alone is not enough. Notice the next let us, and you'll have to have your Bible open here, verse 23. He says, <clears throat> let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He is promised who is faithful. Once we're saved, He says, I want you to hold fast. You know, hold fast is very easy to define. The word hold fast means to grip and not let go. The Lord wants us to hold fast the profession of our faith, and He doesn't want us to be wavering. I tell you what, I'm faithful on Sunday, but I'm not on Friday night. I'm faithful this time of the year, but I'm not faithful this time of the year. I'm faithful in this phase of my life, but I'm not faithful in this phase of my life. And the Lord says, no, if we're going to be saved by the Lord, the life He's asking is for us to hold fast day in and day out It becomes a life and a relationship with God. Friends, the resurrected Lord is not about Easter. Even though Easter, in many people's mind, is about the resurrected Lord. The Lord has no desire for anyone to cling to Him one day a year. He says, I want to save you. And I want your new life to be a life that clings to me 365 days a year. Not simply as a religious holiday. Now, he calls us to more action in 24. Again, with let us. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us be saved. Let us hold fast and live that life day in and day out. Let us be concerned about our fellow man. Let us make sure that we are the ones that are stirring up others to do good. How are we going to do that? One of the ways that God commands is when the church assembles, be there. Because that's a wonderful way to stir up others to worship, to learn about God and to serve God. Friends, that's what the resurrected Lord is about. He's about that veil that was rent, that invited us in to be saved, to hold fast and to stir up others so that they also may hold fast. Now, as we go back to our text in Luke, the 23rd chapter, I'd like for you to notice in verse 47 what the centurion says. You see, the Jews said that Jesus was guilty, but he was declared innocent. Here in 47, he was declared innocent by a centurion, a man who probably would not have been a follower of Jesus. He was a Roman uh, officer that would have been in charge of a 100 soldiers. Uh, There's no reason to believe that he was a follower, a disciple, uh, a believer uh, before this. But you see, this man had seen and heard many things this day. You see, he'd heard the words of Jesus. Can you imagine how many times... He had watched individuals be crucified because execution was very common under the Roman Empire. Now today, execution is much less common. Uh, there are more countries around the world that do not execute than countries that do. But keep in mind, this would have been a common form of of punishment, that of execution. And crucifixion would have been probably the most common form of execution. Imagine how many individuals he saw crucified. How many did he see crucified that said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many do you think he saw look down to make sure that their mother was going to be taken care of? Behold thy son, behold thy mother. How many do you think that he heard talking to God? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, this centurion not only heard words that he'd probably never heard from an executed man before, but he'd also seen the darkness that accompanied this crucifixion. He probably had heard word that the veil in the temple had been rent. The other Gospels tell us that there also was a quaking of the earth so violent that rocks were cracked in two. And that also there were some who had died that were resurrected at this moment and later would come out and walk the streets. He had seen and heard enough that day that in 47, he says, Glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. The Jews said he was guilty. Perhaps many of the Romans believed he was guilty. But this particular Roman man, he'd seen enough proof. In other words, he said, We just crucified an innocent man. Even Jesus declared His innocence. If you'll look back up in verse 46, do you notice the scripture that He quotes out of the Old Testament? He says, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. That's a quote from the Psalms where David, in a time of suffering, as he was suffering innocently cried out that cry that he was placing his life for his spirit into God's hands and knowing that God would take care of him God would protect him from the enemies God would take care of the vengeance. You see the very fact that he chose these words, he was choosing the words of an innocent suffering individual. Even Jesus was making a statement I'm not guilty. You see that brings us to a third thought. He wasn't forced upon that cross, but he voluntarily hung upon that cross. Notice in 46 it says, and he breathed his last. You see, he voluntarily stayed upon that cross until the very, very end. If you would turn with me to John the seven, John the 10th chapter, and let's begin reading in just a moment in verse 17. In John the 10th chapter, I'd like for you to think for just a moment about Jesus Christ on the cross and think about the willingness the voluntary way in which he stayed there in John 10 and 17 it says therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again no one takes it from me but I lay it down to myself I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up the command I have received from my father this is powerful to think that Jesus Christ suffered all of this in a voluntary sense. I'd like to ask you to use your imagination for just a moment. I'd like for you to imagine that where you're sitting... ...as long as you sit there... ...you're going to be tormented for hours. It's going to begin at an evening... ...and you will be laughed and mocked and ridiculed all night. The next morning, the torture and the lashing across your back... ...with a whip will continue. You will eventually have nails that go through your hands and feet... ...and you will eventually, by three the next afternoon... Suffer a death of suffocation. If you can imagine a beard being plucked, thorns being pressed upon your brow, if you can imagine the pain of nails and the sorrow and the pain of being mocked and suffocation. Now note this. Please imagine this with me. It begins in just a moment. You're going to start feeling the shame. You're going to start feeling the pain. But now here's the announcement. At any time... If you would like for that pain to stop, just stand up and walk out of the room. No one's going to force you to stay in your seat. That's simple. That's simple. Just stand up and walk out of the room. Don't confuse the facts that nails held Jesus to the cross physically. The reality, there was only one thing that held him to the cross. And it was his will to die for you. Easier than you could say, I've had enough pain, I'm walking out of this room. Easier than you could do that, Jesus Christ could come off the cross. At any given time, he could have called bands of angels to defeat the enemy. At even any given time, he could have spoke for comfort to be brought and for the pain to be escaped, and he would not have suffered what he suffered. Friends, the beauty of this story would be great if we said Jesus was a victim who suffered these things for us and we would declare him a hero. But friends, he wasn't a victim. He was one that was willing to give his life for us. And as he died, I'd like for you to notice how he won. Let's skip the next slide and let's go to Luke, the 24th chapter, and let's read 5 and 6. Notice this perfect ending, 24, 5 and 6. Then as they were afraid, this is, if you have your Bibles open back in verse 1, it's the first day of the week, it's Sunday. The women have come to the tomb where Jesus was laid. And now in verse 5, it describes them. Then as they were afraid, because they had seen that the tomb was empty, and now these two men are there that are angels. And they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. What a beautiful fact, what a beautiful statement. You've come where usually the dead are. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Well, we thought Jesus was dead. No, Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. How can this be? What does this mean for us? He's one. Friends, think about 1 Corinthians the 15th chapter in verse 55 where we ask the question of where is the sting of death and and where is the victory of the grave? But notice down in verse 57. Let's go to the next slide. Notice down in verse 57 how the answer is thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to that terminology. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does the grave have victory? No. Jesus Christ has victory. If we live our life for the resurrected one. Friends, the Lord's resurrection is not about an Easter Sunday. The Lord's resurrection is about you and I having victory over the grave. Now how do we come in contact with that? Look in Romans the sixth chapter and verse three and four and five. And notice as we see there what the Lord has to offer to us. We are baptized in three into His death that we can be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. The end of verse 4 and verse 5, if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Friends, He's resurrected, and what that means for us is He wants to resurrect us from a spiritual death. Sin separates us and destroys us spiritually, and the Lord wants to save us. If we're willing to be buried with His death in baptism as God raised Jesus from the dead, He wants to raise us from the dead. What does that mean for us? Life on this earth, living with the Lord, saved because of God's grace and God's forgiveness. What does that mean for us? Let's close with this verse. 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. If you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. Notice beginning at verse 13, we have some beautiful writing. You see, the Lord's resurrection is not only about our salvation, but it's about the fact that every one of us will die. Every one of us will breathe our last breath. What about after that? There's nothing to fear as long as we have lived our life for the resurrected Lord. That's what this whole paragraph, beginning at verse 13 through 18, is all about. It's written to comfort us. And as we see in verse 14, he's talking about those who are asleep in Jesus. How do you die in Jesus? You have to live in Jesus. The passage we just read in Romans 6, we're baptized into Jesus and we rise out of that to walk in newness of life. So we're baptized into Him and then we walk with Him. That's how we live in Jesus and then when we live that life into our death, that's how we die in Jesus. What does this mean in 16? For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Friends, all of those who have lived their life for the resurrected Lord will be the first ones to resurrect and then be delivered to the Father in heaven. What a wonderful, wonderful story with a perfect ending. Jesus died voluntarily because He loves us and He conquered death by being resurrected. And we too can have a spiritual resurrection of baptism to live for the resurrected Lord so that when we breathe our last, it's just a moving from this earth to be with the Lord forever. This morning, if you're not living for the resurrected King, this morning would be a wonderful time for the resurrection to affect every day of your life from here out. If we can help you in any way where that comes, we stand as we seem.